Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. This is Luke 13, verses 18 to 21. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilos of flour until it worked all through the dough. Please join me in welcoming Joel. Thanks. Great. Good morning. Can you hear me? Great. Great, great, great. If I was to ask you the question... What does it mean to be a citizen of the place you are from? What would you think? What would come to mind? What does it mean to be British or Nigerian or American or Indian? And our answer to that question is likely to be a mix of personal experience, maybe history that we choose to lean on or emphasize, maybe stereotypes or cliches, or perhaps our own political leanings. Now, probably in the UK, Uh, The most divisive moment uh, to this question came uh, to the forefront of everyone's mind back in 2016 in a small referendum vote that I'm sure none of you remember. Uh, What does it mean to be British was a big question. To be British is to be free. To be British is to be some part of something bigger. To be British is to be multicultural. To be British is to be Christian. To be British is to welcome refugees and migrants. To be British is to protect our borders. Now, both sides have competing visions and even readings of history that compelled their passion for however they would answer that question or vote in a referendum. But even as the animosity of Brexit has died down, every week our political leaders tell us or debate what we should care about, what should take priority, and every year at their party conference they set about their vision for the future of Britain all within a framework and understanding of what this country is and how its citizens want to live. And that will only increase as we head into a general election next year. And perhaps in the US, this is even more present given their shorter history and their written constitution. And so much of the the debate between left and right is about what did the founding fathers have in mind when defining what it meant to be an American. But perhaps we become kind of aware of this question. This kind of question is something we maybe don't think about because it's the water we swim in. But perhaps we uh, are more aware of this question when we meet someone else from a different place, from a different country. And the temptation is to stereotype who that person is and what they believe because they're a citizen of that certain place. A couple of silly examples. Uh, The first time I went to the US, uh, I got asked if I knew the royal family. Anyone else been asked that question when they've been abroad? I also get asked if I'm Harry Potter, but that's a separate (laughs) thing. No, I don't know the royal family. Uh, And then the last time I was in the US, we got family uh, over there. Uh, I met a police officer from New Jersey. Uh, He was originally from Boston. It's kind of like how I imagine someone from Boston to be like, you know, again, stereotype, cliche. Uh, He was staying in the same place with us as us and our uh, kids were playing together. And he asked me what I thought of former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. I was a little bit surprised that he asked me about this, uh, but I was quite impressed with his interest in European politics. Uh, I was quite proud of my nuanced answer, uh, but his response and the conversation was a little bit confusing and and a little bit surprising. 
And then the horror dawned on me that he hadn't actually asked me what I thought of Angela Merkel, but Meghan Markle. <laughs> and I remember the feeling of absolute horror and shock uh, and realized why he was so surprised at my answer of her influence on Europe and the EU and <laughs> how she shaped things for so many years. And even how I saw her once give a commencement at Har uh, a speech at Harvard at my brother-in-law's uh, university. Like all these things he was just shocked and surprised by. And I was like, oh, come, this is interesting. But I forgot that I still, it's still raw. It's still really raw. And I'm, I, 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 I mean, I, I wish I could say jet lag was an excuse, but it wasn't. I remember going in to tell Dee what had happened, and she, that was probably her highlight of the holiday. She absolutely loved it. But I forgot that being British abroad means that you are probably going to get a question, or it's not surprising to get a question about the royal family. We will all have some idea of what a stereotypical view of Britishness is, and we'll meet people who think they know, or they'll have a, a stereotypical view of that too. But for followers of Jesus, for us, we have this dual reality. We're part of a kingdom, we're part of this kingdom, and we'll all have a different perspective on what that means. But we're also, according to Jesus, part of a different kingdom that should have more influence on who we are and how we live. And Jesus uses the language of kingdoms to describe who he was, who had authority, and how its citizens should define themselves and express themselves in light of being citizens of that kingdom. Well, back in Luke 4, if you can remember uh, back to then, we learned of why Jesus was doing what he was doing, his purpose and his mission, and he uses kingdom language. In Luke 4.43, it says, uh, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. In other words, Jesus' mission and purpose was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God everywhere. That's really, really important. Now, to Jesus' first listeners, this word kingdom had political consequences, but more importantly, it had deep theological consequences. The whole narrative of the Old Testament is, in essence, a story about kingdoms. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the self, or the kingdom of money, or the kingdom of sex. And it starts in Genesis 1. God's intention right at the beginning was to create humanity in his own image, to bless them with this incredible creation, and to give them a divine vocation of ruling and reigning alongside God. But we all know the story. Rather than uh, rule within the parameters that God gives, uh, his vision of beauty and goodness, humanity breaks that relationship and that divine vocation by deciding that they, that we, should be the ones to define good and evil. We're the ones that get to call the shots, to create our kingdoms of the self. In scripture, it's often referred to as Babel or Babylon. And as a consequence of that sin, humanity is exiled from the garden, but not without hope. God has a plan to redeem and restore that relationship, his divine kingship and his divine, the divine vocation he's given to humanity. And it starts with a, with a family, Abraham and Sarah, that ultimately leads and becomes a kingdom, Israel. But the story of the kingdom of Israel is again one of failure, idolatry, and corruption. And there's another exile. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah are defeated, but again, not without hope. Isaiah, a prophet who lived, uh, during the time of, uh, lived in Jerusalem during the time of the collapse of the kingdom of Israel, prophesied that Israel and Judah would fall because of their rebellion, something that ultimately came to pass. But also he prophesied hope, that one day a new king 
from the line of David would come to bless not just Israel, but all nations, all kingdoms. Isaiah 52 verse 7 to 10 says, How beautiful on the mountains, this is, this is his words, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Again, kingdom language. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy when the Lord returns to Zion, which is another way of saying another word for Jerusalem. They will see it with their own eyes, burst into songs of joy together. You ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will bear his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. The hope of Isaiah is that a Messiah would come, a new king would come to reestablish God's rule and reign. Which is why Luke chapter 4 is so important. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Jesus is both the messenger, he's the one that has, uh, is bringing this good news of peace, but he is also the fulfillment, he's also the coming king that is going to reign in a new kingdom. Now I'm sure most of you uh, will know that at that time when Jesus came, uh, Israel was under Roman oppression. And so for the people at that time who held on to the promises of Isaiah, their very present and real hope was that this Messiah would actually drive out the Romans and return Israel to some kind of uh, autonomous form of kingdom once again. And so for that to happen, people unsurprisingly assumed that the Messiah would have needed to be some form of military leader. Strength would need to be met with strength, power with power, violence with violence. But that isn't what happened. Blessed are the meek. Jesus taught, for they will inherit the earth. Doesn't sound like a military leader to me. And people struggled to accept that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that was going to rule and reign because he didn't fit within their category of possibility. And fair enough, wouldn't we think the same? To those who weren't paying attention to Jesus and what he was doing, who weren't truly seeing or truly hearing, everything about Jesus was unexpected. Where he was from, what he taught, who he chose to spend time with. And his life and his death should have been utterly inconsequential, just another false messiah caught up in the brutal Roman legal system. Unless, unless God's kingdom is not like other kingdoms. Small, hidden, and yet full of potential. Now before we uh, look at the parable, this really short parable uh, uh, from Luke 13, I just want to remind ourselves as to why Jesus speaks in parables in the first place. Back in Luke 8, he actually gives us an explanation as to why he does this. And it follows directly on from the parable of the sower. And he says that when he told this parable, the parable of the sower, he said this and called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then it says his disciples asked him what this parable meant. And he said, before going into the explanation, he kind of gives this reason for why he uh, uses parables. He said that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. So throughout every gospel, uh, people respond to Jesus' proclamation that the kingdom was coming through him in vastly different ways. Some reject him completely, some are indifferent, some want to kill him, but others are drawn in. Some, to use the language of Jesus, are truly listening. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples what he's saying when he calls out, whoever has ears, let them hear, is that those whose hearts are hard, to those who aren't really listening, to those who are letting their assumption get ahead of them or their own kingdom get ahead of them, 
the truth of what Jesus is saying, the truth of his kingdom is going to stay hidden. It's going to make no sense. But to those who are truly listening, who pursue, whose hearts are open, they're going to be the ones that are stirred and drawn in. To those people, they're going to get it and understand. And when you consider that most of the people that reject Jesus uh, throughout the Gospels are beneficiaries in some way of the status quo, those with power or authority or wealth within the power structures of that day, they are the ones that more often than not are the ones that aren't listening, that don't really want to hear what Jesus has to say because it challenges their own worldview, challenges their own power, challenges their own status. To those who are closed, it will seem like foolishness. But to those who are open, it will draw them in. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom is here, that there is a new way of being human and a new way of living. And it's small and it is not what you expect, but it's here. Are you listening? Can you see it? Now, I've been, um, just to give an example of this, uh, uh, this happened just in the last week, and maybe I was looking for uh, stories or something to help with this, communicate this. But uh, as you know, uh, I'm a big fan of Tim Keller. Uh, he was a pastor and author from New York, passed away uh, j- uh, just uh, this year. Probably the most influential pastor uh, of the last 20 years or so. And the start of summer, I read his biography uh, just after he died. And there's, there's this whole section uh, in one of the later chapters that's devoted to his time speaking to students at uh, Oxford University. Uh, he was invited, to the Christian, uh, invited by the Christian Union to speak at their kind of mission and evangelism week. And uh, it was so successful. He learned so much that he uh, brought a lot of what he learned in Oxford back to the New York. That's why it's such an influential part of his later years. And then on a Saturday night, I was celebrating a friend's 40th birthday, who will name nameless. Uh, And I met a woman, one of uh, his friends, who came to faith at one of those events that that Tim Keller uh, spoke at in Oxford. Uh, She grew up in a Hindu household, uh, became friends with a follower of Jesus, uh, who would later become her husband, which is classic. Uh, And he invited her along to one of these events to hear him speak. uh, speak. But the thing that really struck me was how she described what had happened during the talk and what happened afterwards. Uh, she was uh, describing how she was telling her friends who weren't followers of Jesus, who were coming just to hear, uh, hear what Tim Keller was saying. And she was like, did you hear what he said? Like, did you hear him? Like, There's grace. We're free. There's a new, different way of being and living. But the response she got back was like really surprising to her because they, they kind of ignored it or kind of brushed it away or explained it away or whatever. And it reminded me of this passage here, how Jesus communicates those who have ears, are you listening? Can you see it? Just a kind of really cool uh, coincidence, really. I was uh, talking to Georgina. Many of you know Georgina. She's normally at the evening service. And I was just telling her the story because I was just kind of really excited that I'd had this interaction. And she was saying, um, I was on the committee that organized those events. And uh, she said, it's so amazing to think of 19-year-old Georgina praying for those evenings and then hearing these stories of people coming to faith that she will never meet. And there'll be countless examples of that and countless examples for us in this room of how we have sown into things, planted seeds that seem hidden, small, but actually bear much fruit. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, like yeast and a loaf of bread. Are you listening? Can you see it? From Luke 4 to Luke 13, where we're at today, Jesus has gone about teaching and embodying the value system of his kingdom. But he hasn't really described what it's like until now. And Jesus starts uh, this passage, or this passage starts with Jesus like ruminating uh, over this question. What is the kingdom of God like? 
what should I compare it to? And as I think about those words, I imagine Jesus like walking through a market or like, walking through the fields, looking around at him as he's talking to his friends, contemplating what God is like. And he sees some mustard seeds or smells freshly baked bread. And like a poet, he says, this is what it's like. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, like yeast in a loaf of bread. Jesus used the power of storytelling and poetry all the time to awaken the imagination of his followers, to help them understand and conceptualize what the kingdom of God is. And there are some parables that we can directly apply to certain situations. Jesus even does this in other examples. But I think there are some parables that we just need to sit with. We just need to close our eyes and imagine Jesus saying these words. Rather than simply engage our intellect or try to create a structure for what he's trying to say, we've just got to engage our hearts and our imagination. Here's what James K. Smith says about this and about the power of our our imagination, our desires, our loves uh, when it comes to how we live our life. He said, to be human is to be animated and orientated by some vision of the good life, some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. This is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. We are orientated by our longings, directed by our desires. And at this moment, Jesus is not primarily trying to create a political thesis or a systematic theology on the kingdom of God. He's trying to awaken our imagination and stir our hearts to a new and at the same time ancient kind of kingdom, the kind of kingdom we find in Genesis 1. And he's saying that the kingdoms of this world are so different to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is not about swords and armies, but about yeast and trees and sourdough. Jesus Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God has come. It's here. It's real. You can taste it. You can enjoy it. And in both these metaphors, something comes to release potential to bring about something beautiful. A seed comes into the soil to make a tree. Yeast comes into dough to make bread. Now, what comes to mind? What, do we, what stirs in us as we think about these images? We think about life or growth or potential or sourdough. But what does it mean for us? If that's the kind of principle, if that's the vision, if that's what is being awakened in our imagination to what Jesus' kingdom is like, what does it actually mean for us? I just want to look at two ways, two things for us to think about when it comes to applying what this kingdom might mean for us. Firstly, what God does in us. And secondly, what we do in culture or what we do in the world around us. Jesus can take something, a person, that by itself, like dough or soil, cannot release its potential on its own, cannot become the person it's meant to become on its own. It needs help. It needs something outside of itself to come and bring about something new, like a seed or like yeast. And I think it's fair to say that nobody who encounters or tastes the kingdom of God is ever truly the same because we've encountered the, encountered the spirit of God in us. Something has been released in us. Something new has happened in our life. John 3 verse 3 this kind of says it famously. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. In Titus 3, it says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And in 1 Peter 1, 23, it says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. When we, to use the language of John, are born again, something happens in us. Because of Jesus' love and grace, his righteousness becomes ours. And sin, this corruptible force, is no longer our master because we are not under the law but under grace. But we still have to battle at times with the kingdoms of this world, with the kingdom of the self. We have to do battle with the kingdoms that tell us a different story or paint a different picture of what life truly is. Things are going to come to try to rob us of the life and growth that Jesus has for us. In another parable, the parable of the sower, Jesus gives us three of those things. Three of those things that can rob us of the growth that we can have in Jesus. They are worry, wealth, and pleasure. Rich or poor, we live within a kingdom that says money is my master. It's where I find my safety, my worth, my security. And we can give into fear and worry because sometimes it can be difficult to trust that God is good, that he's faithful, that within our circumstances, however painful they are, we just, it leads us to question who he is and who he is to us. Or we go after pleasure, after pleasure, after pleasure. We buy more, we drink more, we sleep around more, trying to find some sense of fulfillment or satisfaction in this life. And we trade the freedom, the life, and the purpose we have from our creator for created things. And all of them, they remove Jesus as the king. And all of us will just need to reflect and process and figure out what really has got hold of my heart. What what kingdom am I truly living for? What do I long for? What do I love? But for others of us, this seed that has been planted in us, it, it may not be that necessarily we see it as kind of these battles of these kingdoms or these way of, ways of living that uh, we resonate with. Instead, we actually f- might feel like God is a bit too subtle, a bit too hidden, a bit too quiet. As uh, we were singing uh, Waymaker earlier on, it just kind of rem- reminded me of this, where that, uh, I think it's the bridge, where it says, even if I don't see it or if I don't feel it, there's this kind of exclamation of faith that I'm going to believe that you are the Waymaker, even in my life. Uh, may not necessarily experience that right now. I'm going to hold on to that in faith. But there might be very different reasons why we feel like God is too hidden or too subtle or too quiet. It could be pain or suffering. It could be busyness or distraction. Maybe just indifference or not wanting to really press in uh, to what God has for us. And we just want to kind of go with the flow. It could be life stage. And Dee and I have had to battle that recently as we've tried to have the vibrant spiritual life whilst raising three little kids. But when, when we read passages like this, or when I read passages like this, whatever's going on, whatever battles are going on in my heart, whatever struggles I'm facing that maybe lead me to think, man, is this really life to the full? My prayer is that we go back to these passages. We think of the mustard seed, or we think of the sourdough, 
And it just stirs something in us about what God's vision for our life is, what God's kingdom is all about. It's not one about power or money. It's actually God lays down his power for us to lift us up, to empower us. He plants something in us to release something in us, growth, life, peace. And that when we hear passages like this, when we come to church every week, when we have dinner together as a community, we're just stirred to not let go of the hope that we have, even if God feels silent or quiet. Whatever the cause of our strife or the cause of our unsettledness about where God is in our life, we just don't stop turning up. We don't stop holding on. We don't allow maybe the kingdoms of this world to rub us of the life that is in the kingdom of God. And as I've been reflecting on how we might go about that, how do we navigate these competing kingdoms or these, this sense that God can be distant sometimes or feel hidden I think there's something in us or in our culture that stops us from truly stopping and truly contemplating and truly listening to what's going on in our hearts and minds. Uh, as a philosopher, Byung-Chul Han, uh, he came up with this phrase, achievement society, where the culture we're in right now has moved from what he called a disciplinary, disciplinary culture that was more about uh, respect for authority and responsibility to family or the community uh, to an achievement society where we are kind of free to do every, anything we want. Anything is possible. Success, achievement become the driving force for our culture. It's what we celebrate. It's what we recognize. It's what we long for. And one of the things that he, or one of the consequences that he lays out is that what this has led to is an inability for us to truly listen. And as we live in a kingdom that idol, idolizes success and achievement, he says that as tranquility vanishes, the gift of listening goes missing as does the community of listeners. Our community of activity stands diametrically opposed to such rest. The gift of listening is based on the ability to grant deep, contemplative attention, which remains inaccessible to the hyperactive ego. Now he's, he's talking about this in a societal sense, but I think it can be true of God. We can find it so difficult just to stop and listen. We get so distracted, get so caught up, in our own life, that we just lose the ability or even the desire to want to stop and listen. And as I've been reflecting on how we do this as a church or how we lead people into what it truly means to follow Jesus, we think about discipleship, more and more my, my conviction is that actually the spiritual life is more about stopping doing things than trying to fill our life with more. We can hear things like, hey, just pray five minutes a day or read your Bible one chapter a day or whatever, and we just see that and we try to fit it in the already full spectrum of our life. It's a bit like Isaac recently was trying to pack, I think he was packing for Christmas, which is very early, but he's excited. And he had this little plastic bag and he was trying to pack toys in and he kept trying to put more toys in, more toys, more random things, being like, I think I'm going to need this. And it kind of reminded me of how we treat our spiritual life. Our spiritual life, our life is already full of stuff and we feel guilty or weighed down with the sense that, oh, how am I going to add prayer in? How am I going to add scripture in? How am I going to get to community group? How am I going to, how am I going to go to church on Sunday? But actually, probably the first place we need to start is actually removing stuff from our life, making space in our life, uh, having, uh, being prepared to be bored uh, in our life. That's the, actually the place we start first before we start to fill our life with spiritual practices or whatever it might be. Spiritual life is probably more about doing less than it is about doing more. It's about making space for what God can do uh, in our life. So what space might we need to make? And again, this isn't about adding more in. This is about what should we take away? What things do we need to remove in our life to just gain some perspective? 
Is it how we use our phone? I loved uh, Peter's uh, reading that he shared earlier. Is it how we use that? How we treat social media? How we go on the kind of the danger of YouTube with the kind of constant more whatever it's called the algorithms. What, what is it? The onward journeys. Yeah, yeah. That that get you gripped in. Like it's 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 like really hard. Like I want to know all the weird geeky stuff about Lord of the Rings, and it's all on YouTube, and it's really hard to resist that. But actually. Part of the spiritual life is about stopping, not starting. It's about removing those distractions, being recognizing what has got a grip on us, what things we do without even thinking about it that actually are detrimental to us in our life. Spiritual life is about doing less, not more. And what, what might we need to do to make some space? To listen, to contemplate, to learn what idols have got a grip on our heart, to really figure out what kingdoms are we living by, what kingdom do we measure our life by, is it the kingdom of success, or money, or security, or fame, or beauty? Or is it the kingdom of God that's like a mustard seed, like yeast in a loaf of bread? And I think this, this ability to stop, uh, to contemplate, and that can be different. So Dee and I are very different. I, I'm way more a morning person. Dee's way more a night person. So for us, it's like we try to make space in those different times. Everyone has a different personality. Everyone will have different ways of applying what this might mean for you in terms of making space just to stop and listen. Um, uh, but within this, within this ability to stop to being less restless, less distracted, less full of all of the different content that we can consume in our culture, I think what that does, firstly, is it enables us to be more self-aware. It enables us to really figure out what's going on in our hearts. But also, I think that is where we get the opportunity to really listen to God as well. And what, one of the things I do before I even pray or read scripture is I just, I just sit in silence for like, 10, 15 minutes, and I allow my mind just to run through all of the anxieties that I'm sort of suppressing, or all of the things, all the worries that come in my head that I suppress with distraction, and I just, I just sort of realize, I name it, I bring it to God. It might be the kids, or the house, or work, or prepping for a talk, whatever it might be, I just name it, and I bring it to God, and I try to center myself in his presence, to try to get to a place where I can actually listen to what he's trying to say, where I can actually receive what he might have for me, just to get through that day, at that time. And I think what happens in that moment is that if we create that space, there are some things we cannot do for ourselves. There are some spiritual practices, they're a tool for something greater. They're a tool for allowing God to do something in us that only God can do. And I think that will help us when we think about this second point. What is it that we, as followers of Jesus, what is it that we, as the community of the church, should do within our culture? What does it look like to apply this kingdom mentality this mustard seed mentality into our world and into culture today. So as you think about this, we can obviously think about what happened with Jesus, what happened with the early church. We know that Jesus left the small, normal group of people when he ascended to heaven. And there was nothing to suggest that they were gone to start the most significant movement in human history. Well, how did they do it? How did they do that? There's lots of things we could talk about. The role of the Holy Spirit is a big one, obviously. But uh, Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroying uh, the Story of the Gods, describes five distinctives in how the early church outlived this, uh, embodied this in the culture that they were part of as they continued Jesus' work. Here's, here's what they are. They were far more multi-ethnic, multi-racial than any religious community in history. All of those dividing walls were broken. They were more committed to the poor, and not just amongst themselves, their own community, but everyone. They cared for everyone who had need. They were marked by non-retaliation and forgiveness. Even if they were persecuted or killed, they didn't retaliate. They didn't respond. 
Number four, they were committed to the sanctity of life and took in unwanted children under threat of abandonment or death. And five, they lived out a sexual counterculture. They, uh, there's a, a famous quote or a quote that I've quoted before where they were promiscuous with their, the culture was prom promiscuous with their body and tight with their money, but Christians came along and they were promiscuous, promiscuous with their money and tight with their body. They were a sexual counterculture in that time. Now, interestingly, if you look at these five things, and if you were to divide these by our modern political lines, two of them look left-wing, and two of them look right-wing. But nobody, you could argue, is embodying the third, forgiveness, non-retaliation, listening. Now, what I'm not saying here is that we shouldn't be engaged politically, or be part of a party, or anything like that. But what I am saying is that the kingdom of God doesn't fit within the tribes that our culture tells us we need to live within, it doesn't vilify or demonize others who think a different way or have a different vision for this kingdom. The kingdom of God is above all of that and it has real consequences and opportunities for how we try to embody his kingdom in the world around us, how we try to engage with politics or engage with our community life or engage with our work. All of this has real consequences for how we outlive that in the world today. And everyone gets to participate in that whether that's embodying these five identifiers of the early church or through the work that we do Monday to Friday or the hospitality that we show, there is an opportunity to live out the values of Jesus' kingdom in our world from the smallest seed-like, yeast-like moments to the bigger moments to show that there is a better kingdom with a better king. There is so much opportunity for us to embody what it means to live within the kingdom that Jesus gave to us, left with us. Jesus left a group of small, unimpressive fishermen, tax collectors, men and women who slowly and hidden at first grew and grew and grew. Not through strength, but through love and sacrifice, through the power of the Spirit. And there are countless examples of hidden, unimpressive men and women like me and you who get hold of this vision for what the Spirit of God can do, and they devote their life to it. Small groups of people who seem to rediscover this kingdom principle. And I think there's something here for us as we think about how we be a blessing to this city, how we invite others to become citizens of the kingdom of God, and how we think about applying this parable, this vision of the kingdom in our world today. And it's, it can be small. It can feel like a mustard seed. It can be how we interact with our colleagues. It can be like how we invite people in. It can be about what we do with our money. It can be about what we, how we treat the last and the least amongst us. Jesus in Jesus' kingdom is not about the people with platforms or power. Important though that is, everyone gets to participate in the kingdom of God. Everyone gets to make a contribution uh, in this world, in this life. When Jesus gives this vision, he doesn't, he doesn't rationalize it. He doesn't give an apologetic for it. He doesn't give a strategy for it for us. It's about work. He gives this metaphor, he gives this image, he paints us this picture. And as I've been reflecting on where our city is at, where our culture is at, how we might want to interact with uh, the culture, with, with, with our faith in the world around us, one of the things I've been thinking more and more about is, as perhaps traditionally we would debate or think about what is, what is true, what is truth, how do we uh, explain that the resurrection happened, or it's historical, all that stuff, which is important. I think the opportunity for us more and more is actually leading into what is good and what is beautiful about God's kingdom. Kind of engaging with people's imaginations just like Jesus did when he described this 
parable, turn our attention towards the beauty of who he is, uh, the vision of goodness that he has, that he fulfills our longing for rest or joy or fulfillment. I think there's a lesson for us there in how we might go about our days and our weeks trying to live as a part of the kingdom of God in our culture to emphasize what is beautiful and good. Paul Gould says that the human longing for beauty and goodness are both powerful, yet often neglected starting points for building bridges to Jesus and the gospel. In a world immune to rational arguments, beauty and goodness are the filters through which the gospel message is first considered. Like, often people don't ask the question, is Christianity true? They want to know, is it, is it good? Is it beautiful? What's the vision for it? How will it affect my life? And it was like, just amazing to see some of the art that we had a couple of weeks ago at the exhibition here. People portraying uh, through imagery and poetry what the kingdom of God is like. This, this life of faith that they're on, this journey that they're on. What does it mean? And displaying it through beauty. I think that was just an amazing thing and something for us. And there's definitely a particular role that creatives and artists can play in this in the work that they make, that, that image this kingdom that God has brought about. But I do think the invitation is for all of us in how we live our life and how we treat our friends, the hospitality that we offer, the care that we have, more, most importantly, the people we are becoming. That even if this city is trying to form us into relentless, greedy, exhausted, sex and image-obsessed people, we hold on to our identity as citizens of a different kingdom. And that in us, through the power of the Spirit, the seeds that he's planted in all of us, in this community, in each one of us, will grow and grow and will display the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that Jesus does in us, that starts in us and grows in us over time. Actually, through our lives, the goodness, the beauty of how we are with our friends, how we listen, how we talk, how we talk about controversial subjects, the decisions that we make, all of it paint this picture of the beauty and goodness of who Jesus is and the kingdom that he came to bring. You want to come back up? Why don't you stand to your feet and we'll just uh, pray and worship for just a moment. When the disciples asked Jesus back in Luke 11, how should I pray? He says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That really is the prayer, that should be the driving prayer for any church, for our community. Like, God, you are holy, you are true, you are better. This, you, you are the king, may your kingdom come here in London as it is in heaven. That should be our prayer, that should be our hope. And there are some things that we will not be able to do. We have to pray into it, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to do his work. But there are other things that we do get to contribute to. God uh, he, he wants us to participate in bringing about his kingdom here on earth. Sometimes we are the answer to the prayers that we pray. So I just want to pray for all of us that as we go about our life in this city, as we uh, do our work, as we care for our children, as we speak to our friends, as we care for our communities, that we would be modeling or answering the prayer of God, let your kingdom come in London as it is in heaven, that we would be citizens of this kingdom, this kingdom that is small, that is hidden, that has so much potential, that is good, that is beautiful, and also true. So Jesus, we just ask as a community, would your kingdom come? This vision that you have, that's so countercultural, so counterintuitive to the kingdoms of this world, Lord Jesus, would you inspire our imaginations? Would you stir our longing for the life that we have, for the life that we're working towards, for the things that we're uh, giving towards, Lord Jesus, 
would you just give us a sense of peace and rest that you are king, you are the king, and you reign and rule, and you invite us to embody your kingdom to the world around us. Lord, in every part of our life, would we receive your Holy Spirit through our work, through how we think about our creativity or art, or our systems, or our care, or how we teach, how we look after our children, whatever it might be, whatever we go about our days, Lord, would we be bringing something of the mustard seed or the yeast to that place? Would we see that as our, our kind of role as citizens of your kingdom? Would we feel like ambassadors of your kingdom as we go out into this world? Lord, I just ask as well that for those of us who maybe know what it's like to have had a seed planted or had a moment where they felt like there was new birth, there was new life, but feel like there's just a dwindling of that. It feels like maybe the branches are dying out or the, the fruit is harder to see. God, I just pray now and in the days, weeks to come, Lord Jesus, you would come by your spirit. You would stir our imagination. You would shift our hearts, Lord Jesus. You would, we would know your presence close to us. Lord, where we have questions and we, we try to rationalize what you do and all, all that stuff and good though that is Lord Jesus I just pray that we would know that you are first and foremost you are a person who longs to be with us you're a person who longs to get alongside us and I just pray that we would know your closeness in these coming days and weeks come Holy Spirit come by your presence we pray